Hey, I'm MJ Taller, also known as a black wine guy. I went from being a totally obsessed wine newbie to becoming the world's first ever African-American fine and rare wine auctioneer in less than three years. In this show, I'll be talking to the mavericks, the philosophers, the players, and the deep thinkers who inhabit the world of wine. They'll share their experiences on how they made it, but more importantly, how they failed and got back up again. So grab a glass and let's get to it. This is the Black Wine Guy Experience. Hey everybody, what's up? It's your boy MJ. Welcome to the Black Wine Guy Experience. My guest today is the founder of Dalla Terra Winery Direct, Brian Larkey. And guess what? We have a special guest in the, in the studio with yes. us. It's his partner and CEO of Dalla Terra, Scott Ades. Um, so I don't have any information on Scott, but you guys know how I roll. I just am going to make this work. I'm going to tell you about Brian right now, though. At 17, he deferred admission to an Ivy League school in favor of a yachting regatta in Hawaii. Can't wait to hear that story. Upon completing his voyage, he followed his love of wilderness and adventure to UC Davis, where he majored in fermentation science. And while at UC Davis, Brian held several production jobs at Napa wineries such as Farniente and Domaine Chandon. After graduating in 1985, he was offered a crush position at the prestigious Ca del Bosco Estate in Lombardy, Italy. And Brian's foray into wine importation began when he returned from Italy when he founded Dalla Terra Winery Direct in 1990. Welcome, Brian. Welcome, Scott. Scott, tell people a little bit about yourself. Oh, my story is a little bit different. Uh, I started my life uh, as an investment banker. Uh, did that for uh, almost a dozen years. Uh, didn't really like uh, just moving numbers around. Uh, went to work for a big company. Didn't like working for a big company. Uh, and uh, made my way to the wine business uh, where I had a real tangible product that I could love uh, and really enjoy and have been doing that for the last 15 years. Oh, so you're the money guy. I am the money guy. Yeah. Right on, right on. I mean, uh, obviously, Brian has a big brain on him because he's deferring admission to Ivy League schools. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, listen, guys, you know how I do. I'm putting in the work. Um, we have a number of wines from Dalatari Winery. Not actually drinking. Your boy had, draws a line at drinking at 10 o'clock in the morning, <laughs> unless he's out of town. <laughs> Come on, it's, it's noon somewhere. Yeah. So, uh, just... Uh, Talk about, just talk about some of the producers you brought. We'll, we'll, we'll probably get them a little bit later, but I know you have uh, the Marco Faluga, and we had Alario on the podcast, and people enjoyed that. Who else? Uh, what other wines have you brought? Absolutely. We brought uh, we brought a selection just to kind of, uh, as you said, make it a little more visceral for those of us uh, here in the studio. Um, and uh, we brought six different wines that we can kind of use as little triggers to chat about if we wish, but uh, they come from uh, kind of a smattering across Italy. Um, from the, uh, we got some island wines out here from uh, the island of Sardinia, and uh, that's an area that we've just begun delving into. Basically, let me just take one step back and say, Dog, we, you know, we look at the whole country. We're, we're not focused just on one particular area mm -hmm. uh, other than Italy. Italy's a pretty darn big area, though. Yeah. And uh, when I started digging into it, I kind of I kind of tripped and fell in Italy. It wasn't like a long-term, I wasn't like a, a laser shot. It's like, here's what I'm going to target. Uh, it just kind of happened. I got an invitation to head out there and go work at Cato Bosco uh, from Instantanella in 85, and it just, I never looked back. Because I think Italy is one of the most exciting 
places to work today in wine. Mm. Um, they've got over six hundred varietals. You know, I went to Davis, grew up in Napa Valley. Our offices are in Napa Valley. We love California. But, you know, we got six, eight varietals out there. It's got 600 varietals, at least, depending on how you look at biotypes and all that kind of stuff. So there's a plethora of diversity out there. And uh, uh, you can't just get stuck in a one-track, one-track kind of a, a project out there. So what Dolatera gives us the opportunity to dig in and delve countrywide from volcanoes to beaches from from deserts to mountains and uh rolling hills in between and some things that you've never heard of uh that we're going to open some people's eyes to and some things that hopefully most people are familiar with right on man um so we're going to take it way way back um i'd like to start at the beginning man so uh where'd you grow up brian I grew up in the thriving farm town of Culver City, California, right oh, there on the small edge. Farm right, town, right, right there on the edge of where, where uh, Los Angeles. Shows. <laughs> that's it. That's right. You know, listen to NPR direct from Culver City, California. That's uh, that's where I grew up, and uh, really fell in love uh, with wine later on when I got to university. And uh, I decided that uh, I didn't want to go east after all. I wanted to stay west in terms of the education. And uh, I think I really ended up in an amazing place. I mean, UC Davis has, for, for what I was looking for, had it all. And that's what really showed me the, the mix of the wine business. We've got Scott Addis, our president here, that kind of brings that aspect of it. We wouldn't both be sitting here today if we didn't bring, it's really a yin and yang that keeps all this stuff going. And so we need the the, the, the organization, the structure, the ideas, the planning, um, and, uh, and, and the connection as well with the people, with the land, with the soil, with what's going on. And Davis showed me initially it's not just it's not just a bunch of bottles of wine. It's the people. It's the culture. It's the history. It's the civilization that goes back. And we're talking about Roman civilization. I mean, these are serious civilizations that go way, way back, thousands of years. And it's that connection. You know, they talk about having roots and wings. And I think Italy, more than almost anywhere else in the world, has one of the most uh, exciting histories of winemaking, um, as well as one of the most dynamic futures of where we're going. Right on. So I got to ask, so Culver City is like where the, all the studios are. Like, what did you, was your father in the business? Like, how, like... My father's kind of in the business. I mean, in terms of studios, yeah. especially not so much podcasts, but more when you're thinking videos and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, I'm thinking back in the day. Yeah, my dad invented color television. Mic drop. Boom. Dad did that. So... <laughs> See, this is like... <laughs> This is like this is like this stuff so, that I like to uncover. It's like, a good interesting fact. It's, it's an interesting fact. Like, like, like good interesting dude, fact. we're gonna get the dub, but like, like the when I hear that, that kind of it, it informs me and it informs like, okay, so that's a different kind of upbringing. Like to grow up in a house where someone that that creativity comes from, that type of mind. Um, damn, that is a mic drop. <laughs> so uh, what was where, what same country? Where did you grow up, uh, Scott? I grew up not far from here, Long Island. Okay. The, the great wine region of, uh, of the now, Yeah, I know. <laughs> That's a whole other podcast topic. Yeah, no, no. Uh, I, I grew up on Long Island, on the water. Uh, nice. Sailing, in, enjoying life as uh, Long Island kids do. Uh, then went to school in, in Connecticut and New York. Uh, and that's actually when people say that it's like it's like it's either Yale, it's like weird. Uh, Westland. Westland. Oh, yeah. Dude, you know, dude, I'm a honorary Westland graduate. Really? Really? Yeah, honorary in that all the women I dated were at Wesleyan and I spent more time there 
than that Southern Connecticut where I actually got my degree from. Fantastic. I actually wrote Fantastic. for the paper. One of my girl, I wrote, I wrote for artists for the paper. Oh, wow. My girlfriend was a sports writer. I was like, I'll write your article for you. <laughs> I spent so Small much time world. with Wesleyan. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, Fantastic. Were you there when, uh, so you, I think Eric Azimov is a little bit older than you. Um, he went to Wesleyan. I don't know if you knew that. The New York Times critic. No, yeah. I did not know Eric that. Eric Azimov went to Wesleyan. How about that? Wow. Yes. Yeah. Yes. He, you know, you got to work that uh, deleterious like alumni that connection. connection. Uh-huh. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, no, I love that campus. Milltown's a great town and, and it was such a fun college town. It was like, for me, it was like, like I went to school, like I said, in Southern, which was in the was in the city in New Haven. And uh, I grew up in Jersey, but New, uh, Wesleyan was like that rolling hills, that quintessential yes. New England liberal arts college. Yeah. Wide open, yeah. green fields. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so... Um, so uh, both you guys are obviously very intelligent. Um, in your bio, Brian, it says that you deferred admission to an Ivy League school. So which ones did you get into and which one were you going to and why did you decide to defer to go sailing? <laughs> I, I think the last question is self-evident. Yeah. <laughs> we, don't need, we need to dive into that one. But uh, yeah, my dad my dad was super creative engineer and, and, and had all that experience. And he was out of Princeton. He's like really think you should you know go east young man and uh so i ended up i was born to writing and stuff so i got a, a scholarship to vassar and then also dartmouth um, came through at the end mm-hmm. but it was just oh at, listen, at the time dartmouth just, no man you go sailing man dartmouth is <laughs> like it's like oh. the redheaded stepchild of the that- Aggies, you know what i mean <laughs> Like, people forget it's, like, Dartmouth and Brown, like, people, like, forget their Ivies almost, you know? <laughs> Don't tell their alumni that. No, I mean, but... <laughs> He's not going to be getting raising money for this. <laughs> Clearly, I didn't go there, and, you know, and, but, I mean, but, like... It, and my cousin was at Wesleyan as well, and he's like, oh, you should come check this school out, just come east, and I was such a West Coast guy, though, I just absolutely loved it, and, uh... Then I had some opportunities to do some. I was doing a bunch of ocean racing in high school and okay. sailing and all that stuff. So how did you how you get into sailing? Um, that's something you did with your dad or just? Uh, yeah, so, yeah, we got it. We got a little boat when I was eight or okay. something, and uh, spent my summers sailing. And by the time I was you know at eight, I had a boat and I was out sailing. Put my little life jacket on, and mom would wait there, and I'd kind of you know go sailing. Mom would drive me back and forth, and then by the time I could get a get a little car, I was out teaching and racing all the time and. One thing led to another, but for me, it was just—I think it was that mix of. For me, it's always a—it's always a, the fabric of how stuff gets put together, and sailing is a mix of obviously adrenaline and all that fun stuff. But it's a mix of weather, it's a mixture of tides, it's a mixture of science, and it's how humans interact with science that dictates how your day is going to go. And that same idea of how humans interact with the world around them. Um, plays into farming, plays into winemaking, plays into everything. And so at a pretty young age, I was, you know, studying the ocean and studying weather and studying winds and having an idea of how this stuff worked. And it's just how how we humans choose to or choose not to put a bubble around us or dig in deep. You know, do you, you know, what what kind of farm are you going to be? You know, you're going to walk the vineyards, you're going to get dirty or are you just going to look at a bunch of numbers, you know, coming up on a screen, or, or are you going to delegate that to somebody else? And so if you're on a little boat, 
you know, you, you got to take responsibility for what's going on. And I fly little planes, and so in a little plane, you got to take responsibility for what's going on weather-wise and nav-wise. And it just kind of one thing played into another, and it's just become. I think I think it's I think everybody should you know whether you're not you know maybe you're not sailing maybe you don't live near a chunk of water you can't afford a boat or whatever but so what the I, there's so many different things yeah. that we can do yeah. um, to get us out there and uh, I was uh, I, I'm a I'm a firm believer that especially young adults should be pushed should be you know given an opportunity not just go out there and see if they can survive. It's not really that. It's more about understanding what's happening around you, and that becomes a lifelong journey. Sure, sure. I love that. I love that. Um, because there have to be... I mean, I've been on a cruise ship and the ocean... on the I'm Atlantic. just thinking Legionnaire's disease. Yeah, right. yeah right? That's <laughs> exactly. so funny, right? You know more about this. But just like how tranquil it is on the water, but like you're on a small boat. And the Pacific Ocean, to me, being an East Coast, and I'm sure you can read, Same. it just seems way bigger than Atlantic way Ocean. Bigger, like you can, you, I can go to the beach in Jersey, and I'm like, okay, I can actually see New York on a clear day from Sandy Hook, <laughs> right? I can literally see New York. It, it's like 23 Absolutely. miles away. And I can look, I can look and go, England's just five hours that way, right? Like, but you look at the Pacific, you're like, fuck, it's just so, like, you're, you're 17, 18 years old, and you're, you're just sleeping on the Pacific Ocean at night, man, to get to Hawaii, like. Yeah, Hawaii's kind of far. Hawaii's kind of yeah, far. Yeah. I, didn't, yeah. I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't get out to Hawaii until I was 17, I think. I was, oh. I was doing some yeah, racing. 17. Yeah. Well, I was doing some racing, and then yeah. the boat, we, we lost a rig in the boat, and so I ended up not sailing on that boat, and I had another invite out in Hawaii. So at 17, I found a dirt cheap plane, t- plane ticket, went out there and, and hitched a ride back home and sailed a race boat back. And you got sailed into, back, right? Yeah, got into the Golden Gate Bridge just in time before school started at Davis and dropped my bags and uh, literally, I mean, within days and then hoofed it over to Davis. So I'm trying to figure out, like, uh, what did you, like, literally airmail, like a bird carrier pigeon, put your application or had you applied to Davis before you set off on the seven seas for your three-hour tour? The Davis <laughs> thing was a lock and I was like, okay. mom, Mom, I'm, 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 I think I'm going to sail to, I'm going to Australia. I met these guys. You met what? I met the, and I was out there with a payphone, putting diamonds in quarters. And pay she's phones. like, you are, you are, what? You are going to college, young man. If I have to come out there and drag your ass back, you are going to school. You can't find me. You don't know where I am. I was kind of an obnoxious little kid. And so she's like, I know you're going to do the right thing. You're going to come home. I said, well, if I'm coming home, I'm sailing home. And we did. Wow. Wow. That's good. So was that your big adventure in college too, sailing home, or just no? Uh, no, I wish it was. I wish it was. <laughs> you know, Brian. But uh, Scott grew up on a boat. I mean, I he did, did up on a boat. I sailed a lot on a boat. Okay, um, but but in in a different way. I was I was not sailing from the uh, Hawaii to the West Coast or uh, or reverse. Uh, but did sail a lot around. Tooling uh, around along on sand. Yeah. And, and, you know, Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard. Oh, cool. But just, I just want to comment on, on, on Brian's comment of, of uh, interacting with science. Yep. You know, whether it whether it's winemaking, where what you're doing is, is real science, even though there's a lot of art to it, or sailing. Like, it, he loves to interact, right? Not like sitting at a computer is a, interacting with science, but not the same as no. interacting with wind and right, rain right. and the sea, right. and that's that's Brian interacting yeah. with wind, rain, and the sea. And I, I, I strive to be more more like that. <laughs> but it, but it's good for business. It's, it's good world. for everything. It's like how do you yeah. strategize? Wind shifts. How are you or your company or your listenership? How's everyone going to kind of adapt? How do we yeah. deal with this? Okay, we can't keep going this way. And see, but what I love about that is that's like 
there's corporate jargon like uh, you know uh, the winds of change and all that. But like you were literally have experienced that. So it's it's one thing to theorize and use uh, similes and analogies. Like you're absolutely right. Shit, ha- like sh- winds change during the pandemic, right? Like that's why we're sitting here today. Right? right. Yeah. How you I'm, wrote that change. Yeah. Um, but you know, and and the whole thing with science, I. I have this weird, for a guy who went to state schools, I have a weird connection to liberal arts colleges. <laughs> and one of my, my friends and mentor was the president of Hampshire College for like 20 years. My son went to Hampshire. Shut the fuck up. Yeah, <laughs> just graduated last year. Oh my School God! Survived. It, school survived. School survived. survived. That was no. Yeah. no. Hey, listen, it was it was, that was touch and go. It was touch and yeah. go. I was, you know, I I'm I I used to do. Um, work with kids in the inner city and I had a kid who graduated from there um, like four years ago like and and so and like I said so I was Amazing working with the, the former president Dr. Gregory Prince and um, what I love about everything you're sharing and 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 what you've chimed into Scott is that well, the deal with Hampshire and people are like why are you talking about college because it goes to your point Ken Burns went to Hampshire College and Ken Burns loved history and he would love filmmaking and he said if it weren't for Hampshire he wouldn't be able to do what he'd do because he would either have to go to film school or major in history right. right so it allowed him to interact in a world in a way that suited him and and mm-hmm. the other point about my friend was that Hampshire is unique in that when you talk about science and how you love science and how you but how you do science Hampshire does science. So Hampshire, most schools, when kids like the Ivies, they go to school and they might have 70% of the class come in and want to do science. They end up with like 20%. So they have a filter, right? They have a, they have a funnel and people fall out. Hampshire, like 20% come in. Like, like Hampshire ends up with more kids wanting to be in science because they have them do science. Like they're not just in the books like that. Like these they other get schools. involved. They're in yeah. a lab, yeah, right? They, they, they get, get to see it. They get to see it. They get to do it. And so it's just funny how that all is like. First of all, we your son went there and this and that, and, <laughs> but how these things come together and the philosophy, but is so true. And I think, sorry guys, going but like like you said, Hampshire, like liberal arts education has been in a, and is 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 struggling right now. And people, you're like literally a. a, a and even you didn't major in liberal arts, but you have a liberal arts mindset. Very you, you much make so. the case for what the ability to think and change and interact in real time is. is, is it's about. so synergistic. And, and in many ways, liberal arts is weaving that fabric, whereas pure science is becoming, knowing more and more about less and less, you know everything about nothing, right? Yeah. And you become more and more specialized. Yeah. And, uh, you know, medicine, research, it's all... And, it needs to be that way because they're digging deeper on that little fine pinpoint. But yet, when we're living our lives and we're out there in the world, especially as we're teaching young people, mm-hmm. uh, I think that opportunity to get out there um, and see and do, and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to cost any money really because the internet's free and you can go out and learn and do. You don't have to go to all this, you mm-hmm. know. Liberal arts education is great, but it doesn't have to be in one of these, you know, towers oh, of ivory learning. Absolutely. It can really be, yeah. uh, but it has to be someone has to open the door and show the kids and say, here's, let's go do this. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's so funny. And that's what my buddy, uh, Dr. Greg Prince talks about. Like he is about, uh, particularly younger kids, high school, like, uh, what's it called? Project-based learning, pick a project, just have them pick a project. That's exactly it. And do it like, and like, it's, there's no project like, oh, you can't like, 
Like literally, what do you want to do and go figure out how to do it? And that's how you open the door to learning, right? And like you said, now with the internet, um, and there's like a lot of legitimate, like Stanford, like big institutions have free classes on internet now. I mean, it's not even, you know. And I can still fuck you up, though. So oh, you no, got, without you a doubt, man. Right? You got, you got, I mean, you I mean, got to tread carefully around that. It is the internet. 99% of it is bullshit. Yeah. You know? so. <laughs> right, right. But there's a lot, there's a lot of gems of out stuff, there. Yeah. There's a lot of gems out there. Um, so, and you were, what did you major in at Wesleyan? Because, I mean, they're, they're liberal arts, but you still have the Double kind of, major, economics and psychology. Okay, so, yeah. okay. He's going to get in your head. Yeah, yeah. But when you when you think about liberal arts and you think about, I mean, we sell wine. That's what we do for business. Yeah. When you talk to people in the, in the part of the wine business that we're in, most of them were an English major, a history major, yep. a language Art major. major. You know, yep. we don't have a lot of math majors and science majors yeah. in. Although there are some. Well, a lot of a lot. But some of those guys are they. They tend to work in the lab type wineries because of chemistry. You know, exactly. A lot of them do, but in, in the wine side. Yeah, on the wine right, side, uh, but not on the sales, sales side. side. Yeah, because yeah, we we're telling stories. Exactly. You know? And, and to also to your point, we need to know something about math because we're selling wine. It's a business, sales, right? right? Exactly. <laughs> We need it to know is. something about science because wine is science, yeah. right? And we need to know about storytelling and we got to write a lot of stuff. It touches everything, really. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it changes every year. Yeah. And so we, we know a little bit about what you'd have. So what, you mentioned this kind of like when I was saying tell people about yourself. So what did you do when you got out of Wesleyan? Did you go work on Wall Street? Did you? I did. I okay. went and worked on Wall Street. Um, worked for Lehman Brothers and then Solomon Brothers. Oh, oh my God. None of those exist anymore. anymore. <laughs> exactly. But those are institutions. That's kind of crazy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when now, you got out. What do you think of, like, as someone who got who was doing that, and you watched the collapse, like, what were you thinking? Like, because those were, I mean, Lehman Brothers? Yeah. They, they owned American Express at first. Yeah, yeah, they did. They did. Now they're no more. Uh, you know, it, it's it's a big shame. I mean, the the... There's, there's a lot of arrogance in that environment and you think you're indestructible and then you realize your whole life is pinned on someone's trust in you and the minute mm -hmm. you, they lose trust, everything goes. And that's what happens in the finance. That's what happened with Silicon Valley Bank. Silicon Valley Bank. Oh, right on the bank. Yeah. Um, once once the, the public loses trust in your bank or the other banks lose trust in you, it all falls apart. And that's just a shame because it, uh, on both sides, one, the arrogance that you think you actually have a firm base under you uh, and that people lose trust for no reason. And there's no second chances because it happens yeah. in hours, right. especially today. So oh, no, I mean, bank, I mean so ooh, that, went, that listen, went down. No, no internet. That, 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 they're still they're probably still in business right now or right. you know because yeah. there's the, the, the bad time to react right? exactly there was no exactly. like motherfuckers on on their, their whatsapp groups right. get, get your money, money. <laughs> get your money now within hours it yes. was like yes done so and that you know there are people who who love the thrill of banking and i love the thrill of of something tangible something yeah. building something yeah. having something yeah. and so yeah. that's why that's ultimately why i left i mean it, uh, um i didn't I didn't enjoy what I was doing. I, I feel like I was good at it, but I didn't enjoy it, and I really wanted to enjoy something. Yeah, uh, so. and that's an interesting thing. You 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 said um, there's because I was trying to get into financial services like 20 years ago, 15 years ago, and they make you take a test, right? There's this test, and it's a weird math test. I forget what it's called, but like, like series seven or series no, it's it's before. Like I was I was out in California, so I was, took it for UBS. I took it for a couple of different people. It's even see if they're going to put you in their training program. Ah, okay. Right, and I can't remember the name of the test, but it's like, right. like, and I had been out of school for like you know 10, 15, like you know out of grad school for a while, right? right. And like I didn't. My father was good at math, but it turns out I'm good at math. But 
you're a person, there's not a lot of people, they do this test because to do financial services, you need to be good at math, but you also have to be good with people. That's, that's what people don't get, like. Right. Um, you it's know, a people let, game. It's yeah, a total people, people game. game. Right. Yes. So, fortunately for you, you had this epiphany, like the tangible, and you do have the people skills, so you could come over here. But I just, and oh, it's, it's just, a rare shift. It to, is to move into the wine business, like, like well, unless unless you're rare. just like you know you stacked a bunch of paper and then you want to just own a winery. Oh, yeah, that's but a, actually doing what you do, like yeah. involved. Yeah, it's 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 rare, especially for an organization like ours at Dolaterra to have both the wine background and the financial acumen mm -hmm. to build and grow a business. Dollar had some bright, you know, we, we, we've been around for 33 years, but it really took Scott coming on board. And if I'm gonna pick a partner, this is my partner because of what he brings to the table that is so rare, at least in this industry. And folks come in and they start throwing around a bunch of business plans and this and that, but they take the people off the table. And this is really a people game, whether you're dealing with getting in, you know, understanding the mentality of your growers. Without them, we're nowhere. Understand the mentality of your distributors. And Scott, having been uh, mm -hmm. the CEO of a very large uh, national uh, import distribution company, knows that psychology inside and out, as well as our own employees. Mm -hmm. um, and it's that triangle um, and keeping that balanced and setting up for success and growth that you really need right and left brains. You really, really need that. And very few organizations um, are blessed with having that in uh, uh, as a solid part of the growth of, of a company. And I think that's one of the things that keeps us, has kept us relevant for so long with a, with a beautiful, bright future ahead. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you guys seem like learned men. I laugh. Um, <laughs> I just a uh, great book. Well, basically, what you said is a book called uh, Rocket Fuel, and it talks about how companies really take off. You have to have someone who um, you know you have like the visionary, and then you have uh, the executioner, right? Like the person who executes. Now you, you can do both, but the companies, and I really can see it. The companies that really do both, that really take off, have a left brain and a white. Like obviously, you both can do that. But there's one one who's definitely more left brain, more one more right right brain, and that's why a lot of companies don't fail. And that's also why a lot of times, when um, like the number two person when they take over, they they're like oh, the number two, they were the person who just executed the strategy, so they don't have the vision. So that's when you see companies have these you know they struggle when when the the, the original founder steps down. Don't think you guys are gonna have that problem at all. Um, but I but I just. From, I read that book years ago. I'm like, you know, that's that's rocket fuel. You got this person was this side, this person on this side. You stay in your lane, but you, t you share ideas with each other. Mm -hmm. Correct? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, now you're also interesting, Brian, because you know Davis is is one of the wine schools in California. They have wine business classes, and but you look, you look like you were in the winemaker track because you took fermentation science. So, and then you had jobs at. Uh, Forniente, Domaine Chandon, that, that I know, I'm sure a few others. What, where was the shift for you? Like, obviously, you're, you love science. You're very curious by nature. You're very adventurous. Can't wait to unpack more of your adventures, like Tibet and doing cruises. And you're like the only person to take a boat across Africa or some shit like that. <laughs> um, but what was, what, what, when did you say, you know what? Like you understand the winemaking, but then how did you end up importing wines versus making wines? Yeah, it's that it's it's the journey and uh, 
you know, earlier you you had sent out some some kind of question ideas, and one of your questions was, what's you know, what's one of the words that you go to that you know, mm-hmm. in terms of one of the words I think that defines me um, and my path. When I can say my success, but my path is the word curious, and you just used it right there. And I was super curious, and I did not grow up in a wine friendly. Uh, family. I mean, they weren't anti-wine. We just, you know, we just didn't really. It wasn't a, a food and wine a food and wine house. It was more about nutrition uh, than, than it was California. Than it was about eat your, spr- eat your sprouts, Brian. It's <laughs> all yeah, yeah. So um, I, I I had to grow into that, and I didn't really come from a background of recognizing what was what. And uh, so Davis had an opportunity to learn the nuts and bolts of it. And uh, as you said, Davis is known as being, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's a pretty regimented program. Uh, and I think it's, it's good for building a base. I think it's great to have a solid platform. There's a lot of ways uh, you can skin the cat, but I think having that solid base um, is, is crucial. Uh, and then you said you know, wine business, and there's a lot of different ways to look at this. But for me, it was a matter of, first of all, just kind of understanding where what the colors were in the palette. Okay, we've mm-hmm. got this and this. And then later, beginning to paint your own picture. And for me, that took a long time because it was a matter of, and I think a lot of listeners probably, um, when they think about wine, they're curious, they're intrigued, but it's also a little intimidating. And it's intimidating not just for them or their pocketbook or what are they doing here. The question is really, how do they look among their friends? If I bring this, if I order that, um, what are my expectations? How do I get up to a level where it's fun and it's not scary, where it's fun, it's not embarrassing, where it's fun and no one's going to say, you you know, you can't do that or what are you thinking? So for me, it took a while to get there and that curiosity is what pulled it together and gave me an opportunity to start looking and when you go to davis which is in you know it's near sacramento it's which near is Northern in davis <laughs> which is in davis which is you know not all of you know what davis people, people is, know but people know like la santa monica and san francisco like unless you're into wine like those are the cities you know about california hollywood right you know that's it that's it davis. and we're out in the middle of the flatlands out there it's farmland it's an ag school yeah and uh, it's a great ag school, it's a great vet school, it's a great geology school, it's great for a lot of things. Um, but uh, it, it, it's close, about an hour away from wine country. So that's what gave us the entree. And, and uh, Davis was set up uh, at the time that anytime you want to take a quarter off of school, go do it. You're guaranteed entrance back in the university. And I took, every, every year I took a quarter off, every year, and I went back to Napa and worked worked in all these different wineries, had that experience, and got to layer in a little dose of reality with what you're learning in the classroom. Nice. I'm sitting here, I'm just kind of tripping. I have so many connections to places that are just weird. I have this weird life. Uh, I used to study martial arts when I lived in California, and uh, my my sensei, my, my master's uh, best student, was a philosophy professor at Davis, Master Rick, which is, and he's been, and it's just, I'm just like, wow, my world is really small. <laughs> Um, Doesn't sound small. Yeah. Um, and Brian, you said this, so I, this is one of the kind of questions I typically ask. How about you, Scott? Did you grow up like in a wine family? Was wine on the table it's in your funny household? Funny when, uh, when when Brian said that, it made me realize. I mean, yes, wine was on the table, but it was the wine that we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. It was uh, Matus and mm-hmm. uh, Hardy Burgundy. Yep. Uh, it, it was not fine wine, although. I mean, when when we were young, fine wine was just well, I really mean, starting. I mean, it, yeah. really it was just getting going. I mean, yeah. Matus so. was like 
Hey, hey, you did, hey soccer moms, you didn't invent rosé. <laughs> there was Lancers and Matusse way That's before right. it. And That's then, right. um, and I had heard back in the day, a lot of that Gallagher and Bergen was like old vine Zinfandel. It was, it was a big jug, but I mean, it was actually not the worst wine. I mean, it was, Where better, it was no, cheap. It was not Burgundy. Yeah, it wasn't <laughs> Burgundy, right? I mean, exactly, it wasn't Burgundy. Just like this, the white was not Chablis. Exactly. Right. But it was the champagne actually, was not Corbel champagne yes, was not champagne. Yes, right? yes. We just appropriated everything, exactly. and we're still doing it these we days in different it. ways. Welcome to yes. America. Uh-huh. <laughs> we like no. it. We're just going to take it. Yeah. No, we had very similar in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, very much about food was about nutrition, at yeah. least what they thought was nutritious I'm, at yeah, the time. I mean, yeah. uh, and uh, and and the Hardy Burgundy, or really really the Matus and the Chablis, were were. were that's, the, that's uh, so I, I do have to give a shout out though to kind of my my aunt and uncle because they. My mom's closest, dearest friends, and uh, I did have an entree into fine wine okay. after I got to Davis because uh-huh. uh, they had left L.A., moved to Napa, did the proverbial, we're going to sell it, we're going to go buy a farm, and they did. And it and they, they built and created two, two families, two brothers went up and created uh, Whitehall Lane Winery. And oh, wow. so that's family for us. And they sold it years and years yeah, ago. But, still, but it was a it was a good entree into wow, this is okay. This is this is fascinating. And go spend a little bit of time, taste this, show that. And they were able to open up the doors and, and kind of let me in and take a look around, which is a, a fantastic yeah. uh, it, it's it's that wonderful mix of of, of, of cultures and science yep. as well as business and marketing. Yep. Um, anyone out there that's that's considering a leap in careers, um, I highly recommend it. I mean, I, I talked to my daughter about it. She's like, I think it's kind of like if dad's doing it, then it's then it's not of interest. Right. But uh, she's she's a writer, so she wants to stick with the yeah, writing. Let, but let her hang out with Laria. She'll, she, you know, like, like, like <laughs> how about Laria? Yeah. Let her hang out with yeah. Laria. You know. Um, how about you? How did you kind of get into uh, wine? I assume I, I know a lot of guys. When they work on Wall Street, you know, you get an expense account, you go out to dinner, you start getting wine. Like, was that your situation? or It wasn't necessarily the expense account, but it was friends, uh, you know, starting to drink wine, collect wine. Mm-hmm. Bankers love to buy expensive wine. Mm-hmm. Um, and so being exposed to that. And uh, and then in, uh, in business school... Uh, I was president of the Wine Society. That oh, exposed, really? Yeah, that, that exposed me. Cool and job. I had no idea I was getting into the wine business at the time. Okay. Um, so, but uh, th- that's really, and and then I happened to actually run into the wine business. I was, I was out there, uh, as I said earlier, not happy in the big corporate world, looking for something more tangible, and literally drove by this company called Winebow. I don't know if you know Winebow. Of course. Right, yeah. Leonardo Lacasio. Exactly. Leonardo Lacasio. But, now, but we have Dalatero Winery Direct. But yes, yes I remember yes. he was, he was that was a big thing, Winebow, yeah. Leonardo Lacasio. That was my experience that got me here. Yeah. So... Uh, and that's your, and that's your, that was your experience. So you so you drove by. So you just went and said, hey, I'm a smart guy. Uh, no, well, they, they had recently been invested in by a private equity firm. Okay. And they were looking to grow. And uh, and I thought they could use somebody like me, and it turns out they could. So he uh, spoke the language. Yeah, you know what it was? It was yeah. I could just see it. it was like that scene in Risky Business, but it was instead it was like sat down with the, the people at Weinbow and they said, Scott Weinbow could use a guy <laughs> like you. <laughs> that, can I tell you that actually that statement actually was said. The, the person I was speaking to, he, he uh, my first call with my first contact there, uh, he said to me, you know, Scott, we weren't looking for somebody, but we could really use a person like you. And 30 days later, I had a job. 
Damn. Yeah. That's righteous, yeah. man. Um, and so <clears throat> you worked, back to you, Brian, for a second. You would uh, graduated, and then you got to go to Italy, to Lombardy. Uh, how did that often? How did that happen? That, uh, as I like to say, it's way better to be lucky than smart. Yeah. And a lot of stuff, you know, you still have to know when to take those opportunities, when mm -hmm. to say yes. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, one of the many lucky, lucky opportunities I got was, it was kind of, it was through friends. And my, my dad, the engineer, was working with our friends that were building a winery in Napa Valley at, at, uh, at uh, Whitehall Lane. And they went out to Italy to go look at equipment and gear and all that kind of stuff. And uh, they met some people, and one thing led to another. And those people, they said, we can use a guy like that. Do you know anyone like that? And my dad's like, yeah, my son. My son's going to school Davis. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure he could, he could do this. And so it was through, uh, you know, through one thing led to another um, that Maurizio Zanella at uh, Cato Bosco, mm -hmm. who's really kind of single-handedly led the banner for French Accorda for sparkling wine mm -hmm. uh, in Italy, mm. um, was looking for a, a Davis grad and someone who was going to go over and work harvest. And... Uh, jumped on that bandwagon and went over there just to go over for a few months. And I'd already worked so many harvests and I got out there, the equipment was the same equipment. I was familiar, I didn't speak a, didn't speak a lick of Italian, but uh, it, was, it, was the, it was the open door and I just chose to walk through. And four and a half, almost five years later, I was still there. And uh, I had an opportunity to, uh, to learn the ropes from Monsieur André Dubois, who was the chef du cave at Dom Perignon, and his father before him was the chef du cave at Dom Perignon. And when he retired, he went down to Calabosco and to work with a man. Champagne is really about blending, mm -hmm. blending lots of, lots of wines. And I, I mean, lots and lots of wines, but different individual uh, samples of wines um, as you're looking for a consistent style, a consistent flavor. Um, and that's true whether you're doing multi-vintage bubbly or whether you're just doing uh, kind of blending that that uh, that single vintage across a number of different uh, different vineyards, and so be able to sit down and work with someone like that and have an idea. And everything in the lab was all it was all French, and everything in the in the cellar was dialect. None of it was Italian. And then mm. I walk out the doors of the wine, and then it was like. It was it was it was a little bit of trial by fire out there, but I lasted through that and just came to love it all. And uh, through that winery, that's really what in, through Maurizio and his contacts and his friends, I was able to meet kind of a who's who um, of just his buddies who would be swinging by the winery. Hey, we're doing this. Hey, do you want to come with us? Hey, this is happening. And slowly met a few people. And so after. Uh, after four and a half, almost five years out there, the suggestion again, not it was not my idea. Why don't you know? Unless you're going to get married and hang out here forever, and you're going to go back to the states, would you ever consider like doing something with us with Caldo Bosco in the United States? And that's kind of how. It was. And then laid out a business plan and started thinking about how this might work, and picking up the phone and talking to some of the friends that I met there through Maurizio, and he was fantastic in opening those doors. And that's what kind of solidified the first small portfolio, um, and uh, and that's that's how it became what it is today in Dalla Terra, meaning of the earth, Dalla Terra, is really, it's not really about, the, it's about the people and the families, but it's really a focus on regionality. And Italy, as I, you know, I start off with 600 different varietals, but uh, there's so many different soil types and, and wines are made in all 20 regions of Italy. So it's, it's, you know, we look at something about the size of California, 
but every place in there. And it's also, you know, surrounded by ocean. And so you have you have so many different areas that don't turn into just boiling hot desert. As you know, you got to Blythe and those areas out there, um, out toward, uh, as you go east in California, you, you run out of options. Death Valley is kind of a dead stop right there. But in Italy, some of the same size and shape is, uh, it's wonderful. And, it's, and it adapts so well to all these different areas um, that uh, that was really the clincher for me, just beginning to put together, it's a puzzle. And we're looking to put together the pieces of this puzzle in a very bespoke, small, selective fashion um, where it's tough to get into the into this portfolio. You know, we it takes years and years of, of conversations and study, and, and it's as much about the people as it is about the wines and, and the soil. You know what? This is a good time to take a quick break. So we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Okay, we're back. So I love what you said. So you were talking about what it takes to uh, get into the portfolio, the, the amount of conversations, building the relationships. But let's go back a little bit to like um, Maurizio and that original. What was the original? How many producers did you start with originally? So you need kind of a, a critical mass. Yep. And I didn't have the critical mass, but I didn't have the, the, the overhead of the infrastructure either. And I knew that I couldn't wait and wait and wait until it was like ready to pull the trigger because each of these wineries needed to get started somewhere along mm-hmm. the line. And that, that's, that's true to this day in terms of as we're looking for, for different producers, who's available when. Um, so, but you just had Ilaria mm-hmm. on, uh, mm-hmm. on the program. And so her dad and I, Roberto Faluga, um, and her grandfather and I, uh, Marco Fluga, we were all just, we were, a lot of these guys I was friends with before, mm-hmm. and they were curious. They're like, you're going to make a leap from production in Italy to managing these portfolios in the entire United States. Um, and it was a big leap. And so uh, many of these wineries at the time were starting small, and they were willing to get going. But uh, uh, some of the key wineries in the very beginning was Marco Fluga, Rusit Superiore, um, Marchese di Grezzi in Barbaresco, and uh, Alois Legator. And Alois Legator was probably, uh, I think, one of the most dynamic wineries at the time, but also Alois himself mm. was an individual, along with Maurizio Vizel's father, Albano. Um, those guys really pushed me to become what I needed to become. Not that I'm there, but in terms of making it clear to me that these are the expectations, this is what we're looking for. Um, Proactivity, thinking, strategies, ideas, and what their very, very high expectations were. So Carabosco, Legator, DeGrazi, Faluga, that was a pretty good core to get going. And and things rolled really well with... uh, with Calabosca until 94, I think it was, when, when it was sold to Santa Margarita. Um, but, you know, all these were pieces. It wasn't just the wines. It was the people behind mm-hmm. them. And it was learning and training. You know, I, I hadn't done what you did. You know, I wasn't a sommelier in a, in a restaurant. I had had those experiences. And I'd gone from, you know, Davis, and I'd spent my time underground. You know, I do have a face for radio, some say. And uh, at the same time, it's like, no, you, you need to go underground. You go play with the barrels he, down there. He, yeah, unfortunately, you know, you, I get it in. So we're in a studio. We don't have video, but he's he's got a rugged good look. He's, he's, he's and he's an adventure man. Like, think of a guy who's sailing on the Pacific and climbing mountains in Tibet, and <laughs> you know, taking boat trips across Africa. You know, it's not usually that's 
Think, think like an Indian. It's, he's not like a face for radio kind of guy. <laughs> Appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> um, you know, you've said it a few times, and it, I don't think it can be reiterated enough. Like, Italy is so fascinating because it has, it's about indigenous grape varietals. I mean, um, you know, all the bros, the Wall Street bros, we know the super Tuscans and all that. And, 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 and most Americans know Chianti, don't know that it's made from Sangiovese and a couple of, they just know what they just think Chianti is the grape. So I'm thinking like, and for me, I kind of know wine. And Italy's just it's it's a very fascinating place, but it's so much. Is that is that something that uh, I'll ask uh, I'll ask Scott first, and, and and then you, Brian? But is that also part of the allure of working with Italian wine? Like you can never know it all. Oh yeah, I mean I, that's a with, with the right approach. I think that's the allure of wine in general, but yeah. certainly in Italy, you you can never know it all. Um, and I think. One of the things that actually allows the wine business, the Italian wine business to exist, is the vast amount of Italian restaurants that are in the United States. Because if you were trying to sell all these wines without those Italian restaurants... Italian wines you, almost always need food. Exactly. Exactly. Because <laughs> um, people don't do it. They're not the best standalone, but you put them with the food... Symphony. Exactly. Symphony. Exactly. And so that combination of the food of the Italian restaurants, because, and also just the, the you know, Americans, even even in California, don't necessarily grow up with a wine culture. Brian grew up Yeah, I know. His father been to color TV. Right? You and think he'd be popping bottles all the time. Yeah. <laughs> you, you grew up in Europe, and you grew up in a wine culture right. almost no matter where you yep, live. Right. Uh, and so... For people to be interested, you know, people like to buy Cabernet, like to buy mm -hmm. Merlot, they like to buy Chardonnay. Mm -hmm. um, they, they, as you said, they don't even know Chianti is Sangiovese. They don't know Barolo is Nebbiolo. Right. You know, and so we we need uh, an army of people to explain the wines, put them with the right food, and and bring it to them. Right. Yeah. And for you, you live there. I mean, but like, and I, we've said this. Super curious guy. I mean, do you ever when you're there? You meet a new producer, are you just always amazed? Like, I didn't know that about this soil. I mean, are you still uncovering facts to this day? Yeah, it's not just, it's it's the soil, it's the people, it's the history of that family. And it's seeing that soil through those eyes. Mm. You look at the same chunk of land through two or three different growers, mm -hmm. and you have different ideas. Because this one, it was his grandfather. And here his grandfather was gone, his grandmother raised him and showed him, you know, these aspects. And it's never just the wine, it's always the wine and the food. And in many ways... You know, here in the States, like, dude, I got a bottle of wine, man. It's like, out there, it's food. It's like, okay, what are we going right. to pair this with? Who the hell it's on? like... At Bernardo Senna, he's like, it's food. It's food first. It's food, food first. Right. It's Italy food. is food first, actually. Yeah. And and yeah. the foods vary with the regions. And the right. foods and the variety, the foods vary with the varietals. So as you go from area to area, the foods change. And for some mysterious reason, they pair beautifully with those wines and not with these other wines over here. And so the dishes have evolved together. The dialect has evolved together. And Italy is really a tapestry. Italy is not a little country. You can just cut out on a thing and, and, and uh, there, there's, your, there's what it looks like on the map. That's what it looks like today. But that's not the people inside of it. That's not the regions, the history, the philosophies, and, and how this thing has been kind of stitched together. If you, if you stitch this thing together and then you start pulling on it and you put a light behind it and you see all the gaps and the things, you know, it's barely held together. 
And uh, Italy's had over 50 governments um, since World War II. 50 something governments since World War II. So, like one a year. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. No, it's like, and they, and, they, and they reform it and they change it and they go on. And uh, it's, it's, it's a wonderful, I like to describe it as a sandbox. You can just go and play in this thing. Mm. As opposed to, you know, our offices again, we're in Napa. And yeah. Napa's pretty, you know, it, they're manicured vineyards. There's, there's, um, you know, it's going to be planted um, just like you would in Bordeaux, you know, who the, the Grand Cru's are on the Premier, and you know what's going on in terms of the history of that producer, of that land. And Italy is just, it's a crapshoot. You're just picking stuff up and throwing it against the wall and seeing what sticks. And they're going back and they're digging up old varietals and they're seeing, wow, this has been here for, you know, 150 years. This is what used to be here. And then it was, let's go back and let's pull that stuff out. Let's focus on this. Um, and a lot of our producers, are doing that. You know, Inama's doing this red project with Carmenere and that, you know, that mm. used to be there a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And now they're one of the largest, largest growers of Carmenere in Europe, more than, more than, more than what you're seeing in Bordeaux. And they're de redeveloping, rediscovering, but Ecole du Bonne, they've got, you know, some of these wines that go back. We've got, we've got one of their, um, one of their reserve bottlings here, I think, but, but some of their wines have, you know, 11 different, 11, 11 different varietals yes. in a single, and these are, these are, these are heirloom varietals. These are things that don't really exist, and they're kind of growing these pieces. And so the ability to go back and look at what's going on is, I, I do think that Italy, it, the more we dig into this, another country is like Georgia. You want to get yeah. in really cool wines, you yeah. want to yeah. go to places like Georgia. Um, and and I don't mean around Atlanta. I mean I mean I mean I mean way out there because it's just when, when you get down to the roots of what people are doing, the difference is cash. The difference is money. Yeah. The difference is okay. We've got all this cool stuff, but who's able to develop it and exploit right. it and market it and present it to the world? And uh, Italy, I think, is one of the best marketed countries and marketing countries in the world. You're looking at fashion, you're looking at eyewear, you're looking at the cool lighting, wherever it is. It's all Italy all the time. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so when Italy comes up with something with an idea, it's cool. People are curious, interested. And when Georgia comes up with something and says, look what we did 2,000 years ago and right. we're redeveloping Why it. Why started here. Yeah, that's yeah, so it. So it's, tough exactly. to, it's tough yeah, to get yeah, the message yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. And as Scott said, with restaurants, we're able to pair these things yeah. and get them out to yeah. the American people. But the creativity of is of uh, of Italy is is really incredible, and as I was thinking the same thing as you said it, which uh, uh, amazed me. But w whether it's fashion or every Ray Ban is made in Italy, you know. I was like, Persols are my sunglasses. Persols are Steve McQueen. It's coolest fucking sunglasses. What do you? Right. With the Ferrari, Alfa Romeo, exactly. Armani, Don, uh, Versace. It, I went to Italy. Oh. I got a pair of shoes and a suit. You know, I wasn't going to Italy. It's my first time ever going. I wasn't going to Italy and not getting a suit and some shoes. That's right. I was to Italy. Brian knows I'm always shopping. Always <laughs> shopping. He's with me. You know, it's so funny. Uh, the thought came to my head while you were talking because you are headquartered in Napa, and you did say how we we know what's going to be planned in Napa. We know what the cash crops are. I would be curious to hear your thoughts on, you know, a lot of the the wine culture in, in Napa and, and California was Italian immigrants. And so they had Primitivo planted and they had San Giovese planted. Um, after traveling and what and you live in, you work out of Napa, you travel to Italy several times a year. What do you think would have happened if if they kept like more the the Italian varietals planted? Because I mean, it seems like, I mean, every time I get like a, a San Giovese from California, I'm like, damn, this is pretty fucking good. Like, you know, like, and if people mess around with Alianico and Fiano, like, mm -hmm. what do you think, like, 
like, do, do you think um, a time rivals could have uh, thrived in Napa? Well, could have thrived, or I mean, you can look at the state today. Are they thriving today? Because yeah. as you said, all those are out there, and um, both white and red varietals. Yeah. And people are curious, and people are, are planning that. They have the kind of the Calatau, uh, different from what Randall did with his Roan Rangers. And yeah. People have gone out and found their little bit of uh, their little private Idaho's out there and kind of brought them home to, to, to explore and develop. And there were a lot of... Uh, German, you know, even even uh, what Coppola was doing of where where you took over um, Captain Niebaum, Gustav yep. Niebaum. Mm-hmm. You know, there were there were a lot of different Europeans that yeah. were coming over and bringing with them cuttings. They were bringing a piece of their home with them, right? And uh, so all that stuff was planted, whether it was Riesling or Cab or Merlot. But when we look at it today, I don't see the expression of Italian varietals. Okay. In California, doing what they do at home, whether it's Barbera, Yannicka, or, or, or Sangiovese, for that matter, yeah. um, they're they're they don't try and be Italy. Yeah. But when I'm personally, when I'm given the, the the option to drink a Sangiovese from here or from there, um, maybe it's just because what my palate's used to. You're gonna pretty go sure that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and also, you mentioned about marketing, and I, during that time, I think. Love to get your thoughts. I think there's this, like Americans were pretty good at marketing too because, you know, in the early 2000s, it's uh, the red blend hit the American market. But like, Chianti is a red blend. Shout out to Pop is a red blend. And then what's the wine you have here? So it's like 11 different varietals. Wouldn't that qualify as a red blend? Absolutely. Why do people think, are we that wine? Uh, we, we must be in our MC. I want to say not want to say wine illiterate, but like when I hear people like red blend, red blend, I'm like that's nothing. Bordeaux is red blends. Yes, we, you <laughs> know what exactly red blend right. is code word for Merlot. Mm. And so what happened in the early 2000s is the decline in the perception of of drinking Merlot. Thank you, sideways. Right, exactly. Thank you, and sideways. The the you've been to a vineyard, yep. right? You don't just you know if people don't like Merlot anymore, you don't just rip up you know, acres and acres and acres of vineyards. And now you have all this Merlot and nowhere to sell it because people think they don't like Merlot. So you suddenly create a red blend, which is probably 85% or 90% Merlot, but you call it red blend. And all those people who loved Merlot, they suddenly love red blends. And so uh, that, 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 that's my view of the red blend category. I think in, in, in the US, and I think it was great marketing because that was 100% marketing. In Italy, you know, it's funny, they don't they, they don't think of Chianti as a red blend. Right. Chianti is the wine from the area. It's, yeah, wow. You know, and uh, I, I never really, that, that's a great question. I never really thought about it that way, but they, there are so many, I don't think in Bordeaux they think of Bordeaux, I mean, you will say a Bordeaux blend, so I guess they do think Well, the British said Claret, so that, that yeah. it was actually, I don't think the French, but the British started by saying Claret, right. and then we had to define Claret. Right. Yeah. That goes back to Thomas Jefferson times. I mean, there yeah. was Claret back right, then. Right. So yeah, for the last hundreds of years, it's 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 thought of more regionally, right? Whether yes. it's you know whether you're from Gigondas or whatever, right. people aren't thinking, oh, those varietals. Right. They're thinking it's of that region. Right. That's exactly yes. it. Yes. It's and it's this, it's, yeah, yeah. They, they don't think of wine varietal. Right. Exactly. They think about That's the wine so came from this place. I mean, I know that, but like as we're talking this through, I'm like, yeah, they it's, always it's think. Place. It's place. Look at Burgundy. It's all about place, right? Yeah. Bridles are a given. It's all about place. Um, and in a sense, 
that's kind of where we've come back to now. And I think that when, when we think as Americans, we, we were trained by California and then California influenced, influenced Oregon and, 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 and Washington. But that's really what set it. And it was always varietal. Right. Varietal first, place second. So I'm going to drink a Cabernet. Where's it coming from? Second. You're right. Because I know what wow. I want. Mm-hmm. I want that big cab. Yep. And uh, so whether it was a nap or whatever it was, but that's really what, what set it up. And and you never, and, and then later it became about vineyards and place. And now when you're thinking about um, uh, some, of the, some of the newer growing areas that are being defined, now it's shifting over to place. Is it coastal? Is it, you know, is it mountain? Is it, you know, what is it? And uh, I think that that's taken, I mean, we're hundreds of years behind the time and really understanding that, whether that's in California or even in Chianti Classico, for example, as they're looking at different villages and they're giving things, these, these designations mm. um, for, the, for the first time ever. They've been talking about it, but how is this village different from that village? And they're dramatically different if you're able to get down to that nuance to the layers. Um, and that's really where, that's, that's what real aficionados of... Well, in this case, Chianti are fascinated by which which village. What are we looking at, and um, and that has come a long way. But I mean, Italy. It's it, Italy had the very first codified wine laws mm. before France. Mm-hmm. Um, Cosimo the Great came out with these, and basically, he he the king declared that these areas like Carmignano, where we work with Capizzano Winery, this this is the region. These are the varietals. And these are the yields. And at the time, it included Cabernet Sauvignon. still does today. Mm. So Cabernet and Sangiovese kind of designated the very first Super Tuscans way back then. But it's a matter of that, that, that differentiation between varietals and place, varietals and region. And remember, so far we haven't even talked about the, the big heavy thumbprint of the winemaker who's going to come in and, and do that. Ideally, that kind of gets... Um, becomes less and less and less over time, and it's more about what, what different people are looking for. And the history of Italian wine was much more about the terroir than the winemaker, mm-hmm. which I think is different in, in other Right, places. I'm trying to think of like, you know, um, in, in, in the United States we have rock star winemakers. Um, you, I mean, I don't know, but like, it's not as prevalent in Italy as it would be like like here. It's like people make a name for themselves, then they're a consultant here, a consultant there. Um, so that is very true. It's it, it's actually the winemaker is is kind of not a major part of the equation, so to speak. Right. Or it's there are there are some significant rocks, but but they're not marketed to the same there, there extent. Right. Exactly right. They're still putting. The they're estate, putting the place first. The place yeah, first. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and to your point about you know people not knowing that Chianti is Sangiovese, you know that that is also part of the Italian culture because Brunello is Sangiovese, Vino mm-hmm. Nobile is Sangiovese. <laughs> there's Sangiovese from the Marche, and they don't they're, they're not viewed as the same wine. There's Vino Nobile de Montepulciano. Exactly, and, and then there's Montepulciano de Abruzzo, which is a completely different variety. Yeah. <laughs> so yes. it's so much more about the place there than it is the varietal. So, this is a good, uh, the question is like, so you started this, uh, and it, the name, Dalla Terra Winery, the direct, though, that was a new approach, correct? When you started, kind of like a new approach when you started? It was, so, at the time, 
it was uh, it was a new approach and it was it was out of necessity not even out of creativity <laughs> explain the approach though because a lot of people think direct yeah, means something good. different winery yeah. direct means that the wines are being sold directly from the winery to the u.s market to that's the distributor through to the U.S. market, yeah, three. Well, according to our well, three-tier yeah, I mean, system, yeah, it has to be sold to distributors right, that right, are I mean, licensed right, in every yeah, state. I mean, it's and not our distri- to consumer, right, correct, right. not direct, not DTC. And our our distributors, in many cases, are also the importers, okay. with the exception of Utah and places, you know, places like that where yeah. they're not where they're not able to do that. So it was selling the wine direct from the winery to the mark to the, to the state to okay. their, our distributors slash importers, okay, and uh, not directly to the consumer. Okay. But wait, but in so doing, we're eliminating a giant step. We're eliminating the national import. Okay, that was, that was the... That's the big right, key. Right, So So it's not a, yeah, one of the bigger... So it's in, in many ways it's 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 more direct because our distributors have a direct relationship with the with the wineries themselves. There's not an opaque wall. Mm-hmm. We're just dealing with with dollar and you have no idea what's happening behind the curtain. Right. We want that conversation. We want that transparency. We want um, that accessibility. And uh, that's one of the big differences with Dollar Another of the big differences that 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 that's what brings in the distributor because those guys can focus on a lot of different things. They're going to choose to focus on the portfolios and specific wineries where they're most profitable, right. where they have the most support, where it's better organized, where you know where, where things are just kind of clicking. 360 degrees around. That's one part. That's the distributor angle. From the producer end of things, we're different as well, because in many in many situations, there's an importer that brings wines in, and their job is to push down the pricing, and of what they're paying, and raise up the prices mm-hmm. of what they're selling for. Yep. And they're going to live in that gap, right? They're going to live wow. in the delta and the margin, right there. Yep. And with Dolatero, we don't do that. We mm. want to play completely in sync with our producers. Mm-hmm. And that means that we work on a commission. And so as they sell more wine, we make more money. They sell less, we make less. Mm. And so we're completely on the same page. So when we p- make a proposal, when we have an idea, a strategy, it's going to benefit both of us in the exact same mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. And that leads, I mean, there's just a lot of trust there because sure. you know, we have skin in that game as yeah, well. Yeah, I was gonna say. So um, it makes sense all the way around. From a from a day to day operational perspective, though, he read my mind. Most <laughs> people would not know that we are not a traditional importer. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we do everything a traditional importer does because you need to in the market. Mm-hmm. Um, we do actually we actually do import because we buy wine from the wineries and keep it in a domestic warehouse so people can get stuff quicker than just buying mm-hmm. from Italy. Mm-hmm. 90% of, of, of the business that we represent is shipped directly from Italy to the distributor, but 10%, which is not an insignificant amount, is from uh, inventory that we have here. So we have to do all the things that a traditional importer does, but the business model supports uh, a more efficient financial way of doing this. Okay, okay. And so... When did you come on board, Scott? I came on board in November of 2016, so okay. about six and a half years ago. And he left the next day for Italy with me. Yes, that was, was absolutely was that, Is that how you roped him in, the bonus? No, sign no, the bonus. No. You sign next week, I'll take you to Italy. <laughs> <laughs> and how long did you work, and did you, all that time was it with Wine Bowl? Because Wine Bowl is like more of a traditional, you have wines from all around the world. Yes. And and so did you, that was your whole time? So I was at, at Wine Bowl for uh, about 11 years. Okay. Um, and then left Wine Bowl and came to, to Dallas. Okay. Uh, which was never planned, but but did happen. Uh, and when I joined Winebow, it was 
still majority from an imported perspective Italian wine. Mm -hmm. as, a, as a distributor, it represented the whole world. Yeah. Um, but as an importer, mostly Italian wine. But over the time I was there, it expanded quite a bit to, to represent a big chunk of the world. Yeah. And so what was it like um, bringing on a partner for you? Uh, this particular partnership was the easiest thing I've ever done in my life because it was the right partner at the right time. And uh, that's the trick. When, you, when you're a founder and you're trying to do it all, mm -hmm. you're good at some stuff, you're not good mm -hmm. at other stuff. And it's a matter of finding the right person, not just as better than you are at things, um, but can also keep the conversation. I, I, I work better in a conversation. I mm -hmm. work better in a mm -hmm. team. I don't, I don't work well sitting alone in, in, in an office and just... And we talk a lot. And we talk a lot. And it's yeah. conversations that I think are super helpful. Um, and working with someone that you respect that has a lot of expertise in the area. But at the same time, we're both of in mind. We, you know, we'd like to, we like to kind of push the envelope here, think about that, tug on this. Does that feel right? No. Let's get somebody else in on the conversation. Because there's no ego in the game. It's really just about finding, having the right conversations to get to the right the right solutions, the right answers. And part of that is finding out what the problems are or instead of problems, find out what the opportunities are. Yeah. Um, and that goes you know, across the board, obviously, for long-term strategy um, for the organization as well as, you know, there, there's just a million small, you know, it's don't sweat the small stuff and it's all small stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we didn't, we didn't start out as partners, actually. I mean, we started out where I was an employee and he was still the, the founder and owner, but we set up a plan that said, let's give this five years and see how it goes. And which I think was really smart, and we both appreciated. And at the end of five years, if it's where we think it's going to be, then we'll, we'll take this next step. Yeah, uh, and and that's what happened. Yeah. That's that's really cool. And it makes everyone makes us more comfortable, but it makes our suppliers, our producers, our distributors, and above all, our employees comfortable because we're clear on the plan. Yeah, here's where we are today. Here's where we're going to go, <clears throat> and it's not static. It's continue to build and grow and. And uh, I think it's that partnership and having that defined ahead of time. Um, and that's going to track us, you know, for the next decade. Yeah. You know, when we were waiting to come in the studio, we were talking, kind of talking about my life and things. And something you said earlier relates to what you just said now. And like in Italy, it's it's the region and, and, and it was decreed by the emperor or the queen. This is what you really like. So I, I it took me a long time, but inside of you find freedom inside of discipline right you found that when you went west right when yeah. you're studying with yeah. your yeah. senseis and yeah. yeah because because like you don't have like that's that's the beauty of california but the the the, the curse of california is that you can grow whatever you want there's no laws right but here you know what you, you know what the grapes you can grow and then you just want to grow the best grapes on your plot of land right and it actually frees them up to be more creative believe mm -hmm. it or not what they have. What they have. like and need rules. Right. And yeah. just like you said, and you said, like, you, you had a five-year plan, and now, and, like, your team, like, your, your employees, your team, they know where they're going. And then it gives them the freedom to, to, to really express and be a part of the team. Do you guys agree with that? I agree. I agree 110. percent I mean, absolutely. one of the things uh, my wife used to say to me, she said, I got your string. In other words, you know, you're the kite. You're flying in the breeze. Mm -hmm. You're up there. You got a view. You're at 10,000 feet, but you're grounded. And you know that you're grounded. And because you can feel that tug, yeah. you're more free mm -hmm. to go do what you mm -hmm. want to do because mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. that you got an attachment point. Yeah. I agree 100%. Yeah. 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 So we talked a little bit. Talk a little, we brought some bottles. Just talk about, like, the regions these are from, um, you know, uh, 
like a laria. What the Marco Fluga? What the what grape is that one? That is the. Uh, Felt cold. Oh, it's so good. Look at how chilly that is. Uh, actually, That's it's perfect. perfect drinking yeah. time. Yeah. Perfect drinking time. Yes, they're Pinot Grigio. So, yes. uh, Faluga, so Ilaria's family, uh, the Marco Faluga family, they have two different wineries. One is Rusi Superiore, right. and the other one is Marco Faluga. And they're located in Colio, which is in Friuli, a little subset, a little subset of Friuli. And uh, Colio is, it's right on the border with Slovenia. You know, countries that people have either never heard of or can't find on like, a map. Like, <clears throat> and they, they, when you go to Slovenia, they take away most of the vowels, yeah. but the, the, the vineyards are extraordinary. And it's an area on the Italian side called Colio, and on the Slovenian side, it's called Burda. BRDA. And it's, you know, it's the same geology, same geography. It's just like, it's like Napa and Sonoma, Maya Camas Mountains shit, right? Well, like, but, but there there you got Maya Camas Mountains. Yeah. Here you don't. Wow. You just literally just drive just across. Right. It's right there. You know, this because the hills continue. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so it's very, you know, going back to what we were chatting about earlier with Georgian wines, mm -hmm. when you're thinking about, this is nothing to do with, with it. It's just about people and your ability to present yourself globally versus yeah. locally. Yeah. And also, and I said Italy's successful because they got money to invest and Slovenia didn't have a lot of money right. to invest. Same, you know, relatively speaking, same opportunity in terms of what you know, what, what the land the that they had to land, work with, yes, the potential. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it took, I mean, Italy's basically, Italy's pretty new at this wine game, relative, one of the oldest wine countries, but in terms of making commercial quality world recognized wines mm -hmm. you know i've been doing this for 33 years and it's it was kind of for me anyway not just because i walked on the scene in the 80s but it was really around 85 or something that italy became uh had recognition and before it was like the you know the sad stepchild behind france and even at least in this country behind behind what california was doing right. um and uh it was an area that was still being developed and as a friend of mine who passed away years ago, Philip de Bellardino, used to say, he said, you know, Italy used to be pasta, it used to be spaghetti, right, on these red and white tablecloths, yep. and now it's pasta, and it's served in the finest dining halls in, yep. in, in, in the world. Yep. And wines came along at the same time because Italy was looking at France. And the leaders of Italy, which was, you know, at the time, think about Angelo Gaia, think about what Antinori was doing. And they're looking and saying, wow, you know, we're, we're getting a few lira per bottle. And these guys are getting, you know, tens and tens of uh, multiples of, of what we're able to do. Let's invest. And so it was really in the 80s, I think, that more and more investment came in, more dollars, more, more, more uh, lira at the time, and later euros came in. But it's, it's been a relatively short time for investment to come in. And, uh, you know, 80s, 90s, when you think about wines like Weiner, entire wineries like Ornelai was built. Mm -hmm. um, people weren't doing those kind of things mm -hmm. prior. Um, and today with the investment with the global reckoning, they kind of go hand in hand. So you need the quality, but you need to be able to charge for the quality to be able to come up with the vineyard work that's necessary, developing the right land, building the right type of wineries. Um, and uh, and it's taken decades, but at the same time, um, it's now on par with some of the best wines in the world where one of our wines, uh, cousin of Deneri, um, a Brunello, their mm -hmm. um, Tinuta Nuova was mm -hmm. named uh, by the spectator in, the, in that particular year, the number one wine of the year. So for Italy to make the number one, it's not the only time, I mean, or a number of other wineries have, you know, risen to within the top 10. 
but it's global recognition and it didn't happen overnight and it came with a lot of investment dollars that people were willing to invest to make this work mm-hmm. and so um so what's something else you have from a different region when so you to build a capitana you were talking about that earlier oh yeah so we've got capitana and uh there we go so this is an area um called carmignano and carmignano is in tuscany carmignano is basically west of Florence. Never heard of this one. So you hang out with the Rollo brothers. There you go. go. That's always so tough. But anyway, yeah. Okay. Carmignano is the smallest region of Tuscany. Wow. Yeah. And smallest, not just in in in, uh, in acreage or hectares, but smallest in terms of the number of producers. So there's two tiny little areas in, in Tuscany. One is, is Carmignano, where the Capizzano winery is located. And the other one is... Um, uh, where another one of our wineries, Salvapiana, is based. And in each case, there are, that's Cantirufina, and in each case, there's less than 10 viable producers in each winery. So it's, even if you're one of the best in the area, and the area is incredible, no one's going to hear about you because yeah. there's you, you can't get, people aren't coming out here, they're not speaking on, uh, they're not coming to New York, they're not coming to the States because there aren't that many of them to go out and create an image, to create a demand. And Capitana, um I think that I've been I've been friends with with the family literally for decades, and it was a matter of timing um, to when we had an opportunity, and they were looking for a change of representation here in the states. And this is a winery that is one of the most historical estates uh, in the world, I would say. Yeah, absolutely, and and yet it, to many people, it's still unknown. Uh, Carmignano and 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 the winery. Uh, it, it's uh, uh, Brian was talking about uh, a little bit earlier. Um, it, it, it was the first ever defined wine uh, <clears throat> appellation, mm-hmm. and it you know essentially founded by the Medici's, and they have a there's there's a lot of uh, French ancestry there as well, and they brought Cabernet to the area hundreds of years ago, and Carmignano as he said was is really the first super Tuscan. It, so what's a, in there? This is twenty percent Cabernet Sauvignon, eighty wow. percent Sangiovese. Wow. Wow. Um, per, per the law that like goes little, back and, to the 1700s. And I see it's a DOCG. Yes. Exactly. So uh, that's like legit as fuck. That's as yes. legit as it gets. Yeah, it is. And, and, and that, that's like the first Super Tuscan. Yes. Holy shit. And the, uh, Never heard of it. Never heard of it. Only a handful of producers out there. And of those, not even all of them are even imported to the United States. Yeah. So Capitan is really the one that's holding the flag for uh, the, the banner for that region and, and that history. And uh, the they've got... Are, I might be taking that bottle with me. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. The wines are Absolutely. incredible. They're organic. Um, <laughs> but they've got a restaurant. They've got a place that you can that's stay. That's what's so they've cool, They've got places man. they want you to come in right. and they can show what they're doing. And it's not just reds and whites. They're also produced one of the finest... Uh, Vinsantos in Tuscany, oh. and they've got a whole nother a whole nother operation, which is just olive oil. Yeah. Insane. Huh. What Insane. else you got? Really Fantastic. fun and funky and great. That uh, let's stick with key, let's stick with Tuscany, and uh, there we go. So this one. So this is a winery called uh, Badia Coltibono, and Badia is like an abbey. It is mm-hmm. an abbey, not even like an abbey. Coltibono <laughs> comes from the Latin cultus boni, uh, cultus boni which means uh, the abbey of the good harvest. And uh, Is that actually the abbey? That is the, the actual abbey. Wow. Yes. So they're up uh, in the mountains above Gaiolo and Chianti, um, so right in the heart of uh, the Chianti Classical area. The winery is farther to the south 
um, in the southern part of uh, Canada Classica. But this is an estate that's well over a thousand years old, um, continually uh, operating a thousand years. And uh, I first became aware of this winery when I was going to school at UC Davis. Mm. And one of my buddies, uh, Roberto Stucchi Prenetti, was going to Davis with me. And uh, that, and we started talking. It was like, what do you mean you're, you're, you're Italian? And, you know, he had hair halfway down his back. He looked around. He, he walked around campus looking like Jesus Christ to, to <laughs> most of us. Long, dark hair. And he was, he's very, he's, to this day, he's, he's very, very philosophical and very thoughtful. Mm. And, um, and having conversations with Roberto and tasting through wines with Roberto piqued my interest. And later, uh, when... Uh, when I wrapped things up at Davis and, and moved over to Italy to go do the stages over there, um, got a chance to go visit the estate. And years later, we had an opportunity to uh, bring things together uh, and for Dollar to represent Badio Coltibono in the United States. And it's, uh, we haven't looked back since. And that, that, you know, that's another family-owned, four siblings own that estate. And uh, his mother, Lorenzo de' Medici, again, the Medici's, um, was one of the most visible proponents um, working in the United States going back 40 years, probably. She wrote the Beautiful Italy Cookbook. Mm. She's been honored by the Smithsonian Institute. So a lot, and they, and they have a whole cooking school and, and places to stay at Badia Coltibono. But again, marketing directly to the U.S. market, teaching, talking, explaining who they are and what they do. You got another white wine there. What is that? Is that a... That's from Sardinia. Oh, it's a Vermentino from uh, Vigna Serral in Sardinia. Okay, love yeah. Vermentino. Vermentino. Now, this is from the Galora region, which is the northern end of, uh, of Sardinia, which is basically a huge granite outcropping. And these, these are vineyards that, that the vines make their way down through the granite crevices and, and bring all that minerality out into... Uh, yeah, let's go to Yosemite and plant a vineyard, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Let's just do that, because that, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. No. And uh, that whole area, I mean, I, I spent time up there over the... A lot of the yacht racing and stuff we were doing is in that area. Mm -hmm. um, and it gave me an opportunity to go visit a number of the estates. And this is really one of the... Uh, one of the the key producers in Galura, uh, Sardinia. So you've, um, it's basically north-south kind of kind of shaped island, and uh, this is as Scott said in the northern part. And these wines are bright and tropical and have incredible um, length of persistence in the finish on these wines. These are wines that are not soft and watery, and or as some people like saying, they're kind of salty and sapid. No, these wines mm. are extraordinary. I think that uh, we launched this uh, basically at the beginning of COVID, and we thought, well, that's a good time. Let's start. <laughs> let, let's bring the Sorau wines from Sardinia out at that time. But it was really one of the, one of the most successful launches we've had because of what's in the bottle. Oh man, um, man, we could talk for hours, but you guys are on a tight schedule, so I got a few more questions for you, right. uh, and just just some 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 fun stuff. So, I play a game um, on this podcast. Um, it's called FMK, Fuck Mary Kill. You give each of you three grapes. You get to fuck one, you get to marry one, and you you have to kill one off. Oh, got it. Okay. All right. FMK. Yeah, FMK. Like All right. So <clears throat> we'll start with you, Scott. You know, and I'm gonna, and you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you some whites, and I'm gonna give him some reds. Right. So, okay, okay. Okay. So, Scott, uh, a Fiano, 
Vermentino, Pinot Grigio. Which one you fucking? Which one you marrying? Which one you killing? Oh, ah, uh, definitely. Okay, I'm fucking the Vermentino. Okay, I'm marrying the Fiano, and I'm killing the Pinot Grigio. But that's like killing the Golden Goose. Oh my God! I know. Oh my yeah. God! Laura, he doesn't but mean. I mean, you're, no, you're good to go. Laura, we're so sorry. But it's, it's, it's supposed to be hard. hard. No, it's supposed to be yeah. hard. That's all. Like that's like you have to show your oh, wine drinking ass on this one. You have to yeah. show your real ass. Like. Oh, yours. I don't want to kill that one. I know you don't, but you got The golden goose. All right, so. I thought you were married for life. You ready, man? All right, here goes yours. Sangiovese. Nebbiolo. Alianico. All right, so we've got we got three of the most important red wines exactly. coming out of Italy. Yeah. Millions, millions of people love yeah. this stuff every day, and we're gonna fuck, marry, and kill a little bit of everything here. All right, uh, I'm going to uh, we're going extreme here. We're gonna because the guys down in southern Italy they they get they get kind of aggro and they don't they don't like when you diss them or their sister. Yeah. But <laughs> I. I got to take them out of the game. So Alianico, yep. and also I can do that because we don't have one in our portfolio. Oh, there you go. So, so unlike yeah. Scott, yeah. unlike Scott, nobody's pissed off with the yeah, solution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Alianico, one of the great, incredible yeah. grapes yeah. of the South, and yeah. a grape that we're actually looking at yeah. as a, as a, as a, a new incomer yeah. in the coming years for Dollar Terra. Yeah. That one's out off 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 right now. Um, something that uh, that I think I want to marry for life is going to be. Sangiovese, mm. and that is because Sangiovese is one of the, as we were saying earlier, it, it shows up in a, in a number of different forms. So we've got Sangiovese, Sangiovese Grosso down in Brunello, we've got Prunello Gentile, all variations on the Sangiovese theme. And if I'm going to have something that, uh, that I'm going to marry for a long time, it's got to stay interesting. Yeah. It's got to be diverse. I got to be coming around and seeing mm. new things every mm. time. And so for me, that's going to be Sangiovese. Okay. And I fucking love Nebbiolo. I fucking love <laughs> Nebbiolo. And we, you know, Nebbiolo shows itself in a lot of different ways as yeah. well. So when you look at that 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 rainbow, that kind of arc that's coming out of Piedmont, mm -hmm. so we've got Barbaresco, Nebbiolo. You're moving up to the next B, Barolo, Nebbiolo. Then you're looping around and you're going into Alto Piemonte and that whole area up there just kind of west of the Sesia River. And then and then with our Cherche winery, mm -hmm. uh, Scott's got the ball in his hand. Um, this is a this is a alpine an, al an alpine take on Nebbiolo called Chiavenasca. So hmm. it is uh, another biotype of Nebbiolo, and that's I fucking love this stuff. That's it. I love it because it's the opposite of Cabernet. I love it because it's the opposite of mm. what I was growing up, and mm. I love it because it's not the loudest, biggest thing in the room. Mm -hmm. And uh, I love it because it, it pairs beautifully, it's delicate, and it's one of those grapes, along with Pinot Noir, that probably is one of the most enigmatic wine, one of the grapes to, to work with, and it's the most expressive of terroir, mm -hmm. and the easiest to fuck up. Love it, love it. All right, so, um, <clears throat> Scott, what are you most excited about for the future? Wow. Uh, I am most excited about... Um, Kind of the the dynamism in the business right now. I, I think the wine business is changing more than it ever has. Uh, in, in wine business moves very slowly, mm -hmm. and in the last 
three to five years, it's been changing a lot. And I think in the next five years, it's going to change a lot. And I think we are a very nimble organization and we are projects in a lot of different places to take advantage of that and just seeing how that's going to work out. Uh, a lot of people get scared by change and I guess it can be a little bit scary, but I think change creates a tremendous amount of opportunity. And so that's what has me the most excited. Nice. All the future opportunities that are out there. Same question for you, Brian Larkey, founder of Della Terra Winery Direct. Uh, AI Wineless. Ooh, That's ah, it. Wow. You walk in, they know you, they see what you ordered, Dude. and boom, you got like four recommendations off the list, ready to go. And uh, I think for I think for some people that would take the fear out. Absolutely. They're not worried about what they're doing. It's also going to pull stuff out that you would never have even seen that's on page seven that kind of comes up to the front. I love that idea for your average show. And most people, you know, if you want to dig in and you want to, and this is your life like it is for, for those of us yeah. uh, sitting here in this room, wonderful, dig deep. But I, 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 my idea is to make wine accessible, to make it less intimidating, and to make it delicious. And in so doing, it's got to be paired right, and people need help. Does that take away everything we have in terms of psalms and restaurants? No, but it would really open things up in a tremendous way for the other, you know, the, the vast majority of people that maybe would never try something. And an example is I'm navigating. Okay, wrong. I'm not navigating. My phone's navigating. It's telling me where to go. Mm. Well, there's an accident here. It's taking me down some little street. I never would have gone down that little street. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and there's another 800 cars going down this I little know, street. But but I'm seeing neighborhoods. I'm opening my eyes up to stuff I mm. never would have gone if I would have just stayed on that freeway. And I think something like that is going to be what it takes to get us off of freeways. Yeah, yeah. And these are the kind of changes that I you know, a piece of the change that I'm talking about. Like, that's going to change the way people buy wine. Yeah, yeah. Um, last question, and I love this question. And it varied answers, of course, because everyone's different. But, it, like, what's the most memorable bottle of wine you've had? Because you've had a lot of wines, and I know we, we, we all love wines here, but every now and then we come across a bottle and we just go, damn. You know, just, just kind of takes your breath away. I will say we had the incredible opportunity when we were at uh, Capitana a year ago, almost exactly a year ago, to do a tasting of wines that started in 1926 mm. all the way to current vintages. And w we had some wines that were, uh, this this wine, Villa de Capitana from 1984, from 19... 69 I believe I don't honestly I'm, I'm not recalling the exact vintages but the I do remember the the 84 and just thinking this wine is uh, at the time almost 40 years old mm -hmm. uh, and it tastes fantastic mm -hmm. it was still fresh it still had fruit yet yet it was also developed because mm -hmm. it had been in the, in the bottle for 40 years and uh, that would that that's the most recent kind of aha incredible experience nice how about you? For me, it's about the wine and the people that I drank it with. Mm -hmm. And in this case, it was the very beginning of me learning about Italy. And I think that's probably why it stuck with me so much. And it was my first introduction to being in Piedmont, spending time with Piedmont. And I was with um, Alberto de Grazi from Marchese de Grazi. And he had brought out a bunch of different wines. He's like, we're just going to taste wine. I'm like, okay. 
And the wine that he brought out from his cellar was a 79 Camp Gross that was just the very beginning when they were beginning to look at. And I honestly don't remember if it was labeled that or when they went to the first designated vineyard, vineyard designation of that crew. But that was the idea. And then we walked the vineyard and we talked and we tasted through Barolos and Barbarescos. But it was sitting down with him and understanding his family history. And that's just one of a hundred of these examples. Mm -hmm. But it was that tasting. And that was back when I was just, I was, I was working in Lombardy. Mm -hmm. And I want to learn region by region. I was making these trips. And, and he took the time. We were working together. We wouldn't work together for another eight or ten years, mm. actually. But it was that someone mentoring, taking the time, sharing his passion with it, with a number of example bottles that just, I was like, okay, I get it. There's so much here. It was wonderful. And to all those other mentors who've taken time out of their lives and their schedules to share with me. And hopefully, like in, in today's podcast, we're, we're sharing the story and telling stories and, and giving people uh, the knowledge and the idea that there's so much more out there. And uh, just kind of step a little bit to the side, kind of like you do in Marshall. She's just kind of yeah. transitioning some of that yeah. energy yeah. going right by you. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and look beyond and look to the right and look to the left and see what's out there. Awesome. Oh, my God. Guys, thanks so much for uh, coming in today. I really appreciate that we got this in. Um, who wants the honors of telling people where they can find you, how they can be a part of what you're doing at Delaterra Winding Direct? Well, you can find us at Delaterra.com. <laughs> That's the easiest way. Um, do, do we give out more information? That's fine. I mean, I mean, <laughs> so here's Actually, what, all of our contact info is on Dallas. Yeah, everything. Just go to this yeah. site. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So all listeners, mean, as always, don't forget to check out the show notes for the episode. That's where you'll find info. I'll, I'll put info. I'll put their link to their website. I'll put their, uh, their uh, social media, their, their Instagram. And uh, I'm going to link actually yeah i could link up some of these bottles to that we talked about too for you guys so that's where that'll be in the show notes and until the next time cheers to the mavericks the philosophers the deep thinkers you guys check all those boxes and of course all you wine drinkers out there it's your boy mj peace thank you so much for listening i hope you learned something you had some fun while you were here Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to. And if you want to be an insider and get special content, make sure you go over to blackwineguy.com and get on our email list. <laughs>